0: Support for Sponsor Talk and the following message come from SponsorCX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways and how brands interact with properties in sports, arts, film, music you name it. I'm today's co host, Jason Smith. You can follow me at SponsorshipJ on Twitter or on LinkedIn to keep engaged with our Sponsor Talk community. Hopefully, today you learn something new about the industry and challenges you to keep thinking differently. I'd like to welcome everyone to Sponsor Talk. Um, I've got Billy DeMong, Executive Director of the USA Nordic, um, on the podcast with me today. Billy, how are you doing this morning?
1: Doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, thanks, thanks for being here. I, I'm actually super stoked to talk to you today um, because you have a really unique background. Um, being an Olympic athlete yourself, um, now working for, for an Olympic organization, having sold sponsorships before now kind of stepping into more of a leadership role and and, and having a, a team that, that helps you now too. And so I, I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation to, to chat with you today. But before we get started, um, why don't you tell everyone about where you grew up and tell a little bit about, about you?
1: So, you know, I grew up in the Adirondack Mountains and around the Olympic region of Lake Placid, New York. And I spent, you know, my childhood, you know, way out in the woods. We lived on a 27,000 acre private hunting and fishing estate where my dad was in charge of the fisheries. And for whatever reason, we didn't have any family history in this, but my parents felt uh, that I should start as part of the uh, local Nordic club that was getting going at Dewey Mountain uh, when I was about five or six years old uh, doing the cross-country skiing. And... You know, growing up there, uh, just spending a lot of time outdoors, cross-country skiing just seemed like, I think, a good recreational, healthy outdoor activity. But, you know, the, the club that was started by parents uh, did some really good things early on, and just in terms of building culture and, and actually hiring a, a local uh, gentleman who had just finished skiing for St. Lawrence University named Chris Seymour. And Chris really brought a level of professionalism and fun to our, to our training and to our racing. And so it became very, very competitive. And this is one of the things that I find most interesting about my journey, both as a, as a youth sport athlete, and then especially as an Olympian is just the power of good groups with good culture, because obviously in a town of 5,000 people, um, you know, there's not a huge talent pool to pull from, but almost every kid that really skied through high school ended up making a national team or ended up skiing in college. Or ended up going to the Olympics. And when I say that, we had about 30 kids on the team that were in an age range of like, let's say, five to eight or nine when I was getting started. Yeah. Amongst that group, we had six Olympic Nordic skiers and three of the best uh, Nordic athletes for males ever, including another uh, world champion, Lil Bailey, and a silver medalist at the world championships in biathlon, Tim Burke. Um, And, you know, that, that theme kind of played through. For me, again in high school, a lot of the same guys were on my running team. We won state championships. We were ranked in the top 25 in the country. You know, really small school running against huge schools. And then, you know, again, during my Olympic journey, uh, you know, we had a small group of guys that were starting to train together around 16 at a serious level. We all moved to Steamboat Springs, Colorado back in, let's see, 1996. And, you know, we just basically worked, worked together to overcome what had been perceived barriers for, you know, basically the entire winter Olympic history, America had never won a medal in Nordic combined at the Olympics. And, you know, by kind of just taking on that philosophy of building good culture, working together as a team, making sure somebody was always out in front and everybody else was chasing, uh, taking the ego out of it a little bit. We pushed each other to new heights on all those different levels. And obviously within my Nordic combined career, you know, going to the Olympics five times, uh, you know, it, it took a few games for us to really overcome those mental perceived barriers. But, you know, we, we finally broke through. And then all of a sudden, we were the best team in the world for a few years.
0: Yeah. And and so you you went to Steamboat Springs when you were 16? Is that what you- uh,
1: 16 was- is when I started training there. And I moved yeah. out there full time at 17. In fact, I, uh, you know, being a not super wealthy kid, uh, kind of struck out on my own a little bit, you know, I basically, uh, ended up living in a chicken coop, an old chicken coop that had been renovated into a bunkhouse back in the forties. Um, and, you know, so while that sounds pretty tough to, I'm sure a lot of our listeners, you know, it was actually a really beautiful environment for me because, you know, wake up at dawn, start a fire, go meet somebody to go, you know, hunting or fishing early in the morning, then go to training you know, go back and split some wood, go back to training, you know, kind of a very peaceful existence, you know, so there was of, no,
0: there was no high, high school, you weren't living with your parents didn't move out there with you or anything like what it was, you were on your own.
1: Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I, I basically, uh, made the move before I graduated, did my, uh, the rest of my high school, basically remote went back for the fall of my senior or the spring of my senior year after which, I during that season, I actually attended my first Olympic games in Nagano, Japan in 1998 as a high school senior. Um, and at that point I was already living full-time in steamboat. So I was able to finish high school. And back then there wasn't really email. I mean, a little bit, but you know, I was like mailing homework assignments in from, you know, the post office and steamboat or wherever I was. In fact, my government professor, you know, for my, uh, for my senior year, he basically just said, Hey, once a week, I want you to pick up the Herald trip, read a bunch of articles, and then write an essay about government.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love that. So you, you, uh, when, when you were, um, kind of dedicated at Steamboat Springs and, and working with your team there, you Mm -hmm. know, as, as you were training, what was it like to dedicate like so much time, time to that? I mean, You talked about the mental aspect, but then there's also a physical aspect to it. Like, what was that like for you?
1: I, it was incredible because it was just like, you know, again, living in a chicken coop on a ranch, you know, there's just not a lot of distractions. You know, I didn't have internet. I didn't have television. Um, I might've had a house phone, I think. Uh,
0: and your team was your family. I'm assuming My team
1: was my family. You know, it was like show up at eight o'clock in the morning, jump in the van, uh, you know, go for a roller ski and, you know. Go grab lunch together, maybe go fishing in the afternoon, or some people went and took a nap and then we'd meet back up for training again. And um, so it was uh it was almost like monk-like existence, you know.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah,
1: but very outdoor oriented, just a real incubator. Um, probably some of the the most interesting years of my life for sure. Like I keep saying hunting and fishing, you know, Johnny Spillane, who was a silver medalist when I won in, in uh Vancouver, we went one too. And we were kind of perennial roommates on the road for a decade. Um, You know, he and I basically would try to hunt or fish or scout for one of those two things every day. Um, You know, and obviously we were traveling in Europe for a lot of the, the year in the winter. But, you know, we made that happen pretty much, you know, from the time we started training in April until the time we hit the road in October.
0: So what is, well, first of all, do you fly fish, Billy?
1: Uh, absolutely in fact so
0: so you and I we have not I don't know if we've connected on that but you and I have got to go fly fishing so we'll 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 plan on that but so tell tell the listeners about you won won the gold um and why don't you tell a little bit about the the Nordic team kind of what what the Nordic team does and is and then um tell the listeners about that experience winning gold in Vancouver
1: yeah so I'm Again, moving to Steamboat, it was basically a mandatory move. If you wanted to be part of the U.S. Nordic combined team, you had to live in Steamboat Springs. You had to show up. You were accountable, you know, to the team every single day, um, you know. And to do that at a young age, like 17, 16, 17, 18, really, by the full transition, was, uh, was a really interesting way to kind of, like, break into that sphere, you know, because it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go home, and then I'll show up for camp for a week, and then I'll be home for a month by myself you know, I don't know how it would have gone if I'd been accountable only to myself. I know how hard yeah. it was to train by myself sometimes at that age. Um,
0: to achieve having, great success, there has to be that accountability. That's why we work in teams. It's really hard to to uh, to to grow things on your own. You need to surround yourself with, with great people.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, during that development phase, we did have a couple of uh, older athletes like Todd Lodwick, Tim Tatro, Dave Jarrett, who had already been to the Olympics. Some of them had already actually broken onto the World Cup podium like once or twice, which was already historic. And it created this, this atmosphere where if you only show up at team camp, you know, once a month for a week, you tend to beat the crap out of each other instead of focusing on the goal for the day. And a lot of times, and especially endurance sports, the goal for the day is to go easy and long. You know, you're trying to build a pyramid here. So you need to spend a lot of time going really slow you know, doing uh, very low intensity roller skiing, running, cycling, hiking, whatever. And, you know, if you're by yourself, it's easy to not want to go as long or to go too fast, you know, because yeah. it's not fun to just plod along, but yep. plodding along for three or four hours a day is what it requires to build a big engine that can then be tuned later in life. Um, so that was an important beginning of the journey for, for all of us. And then as we went through our first games in Nagano, you know, we kind of got our eyes wide open. Um, And then we really committed as athletes and really under the auspices of the coaches to try to meddle in Salt Lake. I mean, it was almost like a this must happen kind of goal, which was kind of two things. One, it was really positive because we had to create the belief that we could do something that had never been done by an American before. And, and as a result, we got really close. In fact, you know, one one change of the ski wax at Soldier Hollow in 2002, and we would have been on the podium, um, but we missed by a little bit and we ended up fourth. On the flip side, it was such a austere journey for that Olympiad. Uh, there was a lot of pressure, uh, there was a lot of team meetings, and, you know, it made it a real letdown when we didn't accomplish that goal and so after that we actually had to back up and keep in mind you know I won in 2010 which was my fourth games yeah um we all had to back off a little bit after that to kind of just grow and develop because now we had to take ownership the coaching staff changed over and we needed something different and so we ended up hiring Dave Jarrett back who had gone on to CU and got a degree in exercise physiology and he had started coaching at a development level. And what he brought to the table was a more professional approach and a very innovative approach to how we train and why we train the way we train. So instead of like doing what we'd always done, which was essentially try to mimic what the Norwegians did, which is we get up, we go ski, you
0: know,
1: we have lunch, we take a nap, we go jumping, we go to bed. Um, Dave and, and we, we had a willing group of athletes to try something different. We really looked at like what athletes were doing in track and field, what athletes were doing in running, what athletes were doing in in a bunch of other power sports, you know, like especially weight restricted power sports like Nordic combined and ski jumping where you're trying to be really strong and really powerful, but you also have to be really light. So we ended up creating a whole periodization of mesocycles and macro cycles that were weeks building on weeks, months building on months, years building on years. And and really actually separating the two disciplines. Because if you think about it, ski jumping and cross-country skiing are totally different. You know, a specialist in each sport is like a whole different animal. You know, the cross-country skiers tend to be big, muscular uh, athletes that spend a lot of time going really slow, they do some intensity, they don't tend to be super powerful. Like you're probably looking at like, different
0: different muscles, right, too, that you're kind of conditioning? In different, as in well? different
1: muscle types, you know, like yeah. the cross-country skiers train to be, you know, like marathon runners, essentially. Um, yep. Whereas the ski jumpers, they do almost no cardio, and they spend a lot of time doing very powerful movements in the gym and also trying to get as light as possible. So a combined skier ends up being a blend of those two. And we found a better way to do it was to try to get better at one, maintain the other, and then switch. And so we were, we were constantly fine-tuning that approach. And you, you started to see the results really come up um, after 2002. Johnny managed like a miracle victory at World Championships, which was the first American Nordic World uh, Championship title in history for any discipline. And then we all fed off of that. And it wasn't for a few more years that we've meddled again. But you know, he, he made it happen. He had an opportunity, he took it. And it put everybody else on the team on a playing field where we're like, yeah, he's got the medal, but I can beat him.
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
1: If he's good enough, I'm good enough. Yeah. You know, and it wasn't in an egotistical way, it was actually in a really powerful way. And we ended up doing that changing leads several times throughout our careers, not just him and I, but other guys on the team. And, you know, by 2006, the results were coming up across the board. By 2007, I medaled at the world championships. And then by 2009, we swept the world championships in Liberec in the Czech Republic. And then in 2010, we were the team to beat. And there was a lot of races in that Olympic season where you'd be watching Eurosport. And typically, you know, you see an American here or there, occasionally one does well we would be one, two, three, like we'd be at the front of the race using team tactics nobody else was using. And we did all sorts of interesting, innovative stuff over that period where we, we started using supplemental oxygen. We started doing a lot more training on a giant roller ski treadmill, not just for testing, but for actual training and adaptation. You know, these are things that are now becoming popular. And that actually brings up a quote from one of our coaches um, who said, if, if we wait for science, we're going to be 10 years too far behind. And so we were always trying to stay at the cutting edge and try something different, something that nobody else had tried yet. And, you know, it, it just, it it made it for, and and this is going to circle back to your original question here about the journey. I don't think any of us really got involved in Nordic combined because we even thought we were going to go to the Olympics someday, let alone medal someday, maybe a couple, but I know for me, it was something I just loved doing. And then, In fact, when I was 15 or 16, I was so terrible. One of my coaches as a kid told me, you're the reason I smoke. (laughs) And, you know, that motivated me. And, and then, you know, over the years, as we started to build this desire and this belief that we could do it, uh, you know, we had to try a lot of different things. We had to lose a lot more races than we could ever win. Um, but on the flip side, when we finally executed in Vancouver, We ended up taking home a total of four medals, one gold and three silvers, uh, which was actually kind of the basis for America winning its first and today only Winter Olympic medal count. Um, It just, I just remember sitting, (laughs) standing on the podium with Johnny after we went one, two in the final race of the Olympics, and then going back to our room at the Olympic Village and just sitting on the bed. And between the two of us, we had six medals, you know, because he had. Or sorry, five, you know, we each had a team medal and then he had two individual medals and I had one. And so we're just sitting there and we're just staring at each other, like, and they just burst out laughing. And to me, it's like, it's all about the journey, you know, like it's about doing it right, doing it with good people. And, you know, it just makes it, it's not about the medal, that medal, you know, it's fun to share it with people, but for me, it's, it's not, it's not about the medal. It was, it's all about how we got there.
0: I love that. What, what is, what is it like standing on the podium as as a goal, as a gold medalist, hearing the national anthem. And after all of that work that you just talked about, it's almost like
1: your life flashing before your eyes, you know, like, and especially through the Olympic lens, you know, I remember just standing there and thinking about the journey, thinking about, you know my childhood heroes whether it was Paul Wiley or Dan Jansen or you know Bonnie Blair like all these Olympic greats um that I had watched growing up and and honestly I don't think it was until I was probably 16 that I even saw a pathway to get there you know it was it was a dream and the biggest dream of dreams it wasn't anything that I was like writing down on a piece of paper as a 15 year old like my goal in life is to go to the Olympics like i I wasn't good enough to be honest at that point. And then something changed and then I was able to commit and go.
0: So something that, that came to my mind that I'd like you to touch on here that, that uh, I just thought of as you were talking about your journey is how do you apply everything that you just talked about from, from innovation to teamwork, to the mental, to the physical, to the reward at the end? Like, how do you apply all that you learned from being a an Olympic gold medalist to business today like in your business in your business life
1: that's a great transition I mean I feel like you know just to give the listeners a little insight into what I do now so after finishing a five Olympic career um, my sport was unfortunately part of a group of sports that were cut from funding from the U.S. Olympic Committee via the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Association. Um, Really starting in around 2008, after the financial crisis, there was a huge focus on resource allocation. And so there were several disciplines that were no longer funded. And even though Nordic Combined continued to be funded through the the 2014 games in Sochi, um, after our group retired, uh, that funding dried up, and so you know, for me, that was that was unacceptable. You know, I did not win an Olympic gold medal so that I could have a gold medal to stare at for the rest of my life. I did that more to build a legacy for kids to be able to dream that they could follow in our footsteps and show yeah. them a pathway to get there. Absolutely. And so, when that pathway was basically going away, I pivoted really hard and. Um, you know, there was an organization that had been started by a really bold group of our alumni uh, to support ski jumping, which was one of the first sports to get cut uh, following the 2008-09 season, I believe. And this organization, USA Ski Jumping, was, you know, it was kind of a, a brother organization, it was really focused just on a national team at that point. And then they had started to wade into sport development to start to look at structural issues, you know, as the sport had gone from one of the the most popular original Olympic disciplines in the United States with jumping hills all over the East and the Midwest and even out here in the Rockies and the far West. um, They started looking into taking a catalog of venues, athletes, et cetera. And so coming out of the 2014 season when the funding was cut for Nordic Combined, I joined the board of USA ski jumping. And over the next year, we, we really reorganized. We added the Nordic Combined team, brought the sports together. I mean, at the, at the base, at every club in the United States, and there's about 30 of them from Anchorage to New Hampshire, um, you know, ski jumpers and Nordic combined skiers share the ski jumping venue. You know, they basically grow up. Most athletes will, take part in Nordic combined at an early age for skill development, and then specialize anywhere from 10 to 15 years old. Um, and so as we built, this, started to build this organization, I was on the board, um, I started to help drive some funding into the organization. We actually renamed it in 2015 to USA Nordic Sport, which is what the organization is known as today. And I really I spent a lot of time uh, supporting the executive director and the board uh, on several key areas, utilizing the knowledge that I had from my career of the entire movement in this country. Like, what's working, what's not working. You know, you see a lot in the news today about how athletes are underfunded and underappreciated, uh, and and you know that there's a lack of resources when the, within the movement. So, I started to really set out to try to create an organization that was different than a traditional national governing body. And in 2016, I got the opportunity to take over as the executive director. And so right out of the gate, I really went hard at trying to build revenue streams that, you know, really the goal was to build something that was both financially and athletically sustainable into the future, something that could outlive us all. But by building a strong foundation for the organization to be self-sustaining, when the athletic results start to get back to the level we enjoyed in 2010, the organization would be in a position to monetize the value of those results and continue in perpetuity to develop athletes that could attain those results. And so I would say we're like halfway there. This has been a real interesting journey. it's a very bureaucratic environment in the Olympic movement, there's a ton of national governing bodies that all report to the US Olympic Committee. Because US ski and snowboard is the national governing body for all ski and snowboard disciplines, even though they're not able to fund several of them. We still sort of report through them on certain things, especially surrounding games planning, and also to our International, Federation, uh, International Ski Federation. So, you know, it's a very complex environment, but what we did is we, we changed the focus a little bit from purely elite sport. We spent a lot more energy and resources on developing the pipeline, you know, working with the clubs, coaches, education, things that big NGBs do pretty well, like soccer, et cetera. But, you know, using our scarce resources, we said, we got to grow the base. We got to grow our sport. We got to improve the quality at every level. We have to reduce barriers in the pipeline, reduce attrition, et cetera. So those have been really big focuses. And four years ago, we started a junior national team program, which is really a development tool. You know, it is a bit pay to play, but it's, it's the only way we can afford to, to basically support a bunch of uh, up and coming 16 to 20 year old athletes with coaching and competition opportunities around the world and things that really help them stay in the sport longer and also like learn how to compete. And then once they reach the national team level, we're offer, uh, able to prioritize even higher levels of financial support and also you know, high performance. But at the same point, you know, we're still really focused on making sure that they've now been developed, they still have access to all the resources, but they're more in a position to compete to win. And we're like halfway through that journey right now. And as I look forward, and I I think one of the important distinctions, you you mentioned business, like I had the opportunity when I was an athlete to try different things to support myself financially during my career. So starting in the late nineties, I started investing in equities. And then in the early two thousands, I started, I had a year off after 2002 where I went back to school and I, and I, Uh, apprenticed under a general contractor building some fairly large spec homes and steamboat. And then when I moved back to Park City to train with the team in 2003, you know, I started to invest in real estate and, you know, use the knowledge I had from building. And then I started a couple of businesses like building concrete countertops, et cetera. So I kind of, this is a, a little bit, you know, just learned over time, but then coming out of my career, to your point, I think a lot of the attributes that we put into, our Olympic journey that made us successful. So the innovation, the efficiency, you know, the, the ability to pivot, to take all those different attributes that all took each took time. It's just like the, you know, the approach to training, you know, the more you practice and practice and practice, you're, you're really, your goal is to play. Right. Yeah. But sometimes you have to break it down into, you know, individual movements in sport, and then you can put it all together. And, you know, in the business world, it's definitely been uh, a really enjoyable journey. Um, It's been challenging for sure. And especially building something that, you know, theoretically shouldn't exist on paper, but now not only exists, but is thriving and is being looked at by other disciplines, other sports and saying, okay, well, now that these guys have built the threshold of focus with the support of their alumni, Um, and, and actually taken a a bit of more of a business approach because we do not get any funding from any of the, uh, higher level organizations in the movement currently. So this has been uh, a much more bootstrap and, and, uh, self-reliant endeavor than a lot of what currently exists in other sports. And
0: which, which is why you rely on different sources of funding sponsorships being one of them, um, Mm -hmm to, to be able to do that. And you've eloquently like outlined the, the success of this USA Nordic sport organization, right. And, and, and the need, and I kind of want to transition into, into sponsorship um, with, with the, with the organization um, itself. And so obviously there's a lot of USA um, organizations out there that you've got different uh, brands out there that will associate and sponsor, these different teams. Um, and you, you have yours too. You have a handful of, of, key partners with the USA Nordic sport team there. And, and so, uh, the question I have for you is, is, um, how do partnerships like this typically develop? Like the, the partnerships that you have, like what type of, of, uh, partner do you attract to your organization?
1: That's a great question. And, you know, I think one of the things I want to speak to a little bit is the challenge of partnerships in small organizations, you know, I was the, basically the, the, well, I was the chief bottle washer, the CFO, the <laughs> social yeah. media guy, and the sales guy uh, for our organization for the first year.
0: That's what happens years. when you start it from scratch, though, right? You know, it's Absolutely. like you got to do it all.
1: You got to wear every hat. Yep. Um, yep. Code in HTML, you know, build your MailChimp database, et cetera. Yep. Um, you know, so what I found out of the gate is that, A, you need to be... Organized about your assets, you need to be really seeking win wins for you and your partners. Obviously, um, but obviously, network is really important, and and being able to utilize the the connections that you have to find partners that can benefit from the assets that your organization can deploy, whether it's you know through the athletes, through content, through you know, and it's it's a it's an ever changing game. I had a lot of success early on. Um, I was tenacious, and I knew a lot of people, and I think I built. Sometimes some that's
0: all you need, Billy. Tenacity.
1: <laughs> some tenacity, <laughs> and I and you know I built some really good partnerships, and and a lot of them lasted a long time. But what I saw is that as our organization, you know, increased in size, and just to give everybody a little, you know, inside view on that, you know, when I started on the board, the year prior our fiscal was, uh, our, our, our gross was around $450,000 today. We have a budget of 2.9 million. So that's in about a year timeframe as we grew and I had a harder time wearing all the different hats, mostly because when you bring on more and more people, you spend more and more time managing those people and trying to take what you built and how you did it and give it to them. And sometimes that's smooth and sometimes that's not. And so I've learned a lot of lessons along the way about, training part-time amateur or full-time amateurs to do something versus hiring full-time or part-time experts um and one of the things that i've really changed over the last year and a half two years is i i met with a childhood friend who was a cross-country skier from saranac lake as well but realized early on that he uh wasn't going to keep up with most of us so he decided to move into pro sports his name's neil Fortier, and he has an agency called the diff Uh, Neil and I reconnected over LinkedIn several years ago and he was the chief uh, commercial or uh, partnership person at the Cleveland Cavaliers. And so as he was looking to transition to the agency world, you know, we started working together and what he's really brought to a smaller smaller organization is a return of that focus, not only on an increased professionalism, mind you, like as proud of as I am of some of the things partnerships that I built. you know he's really made a slowdown return to let's break down our assets, let's make sure that we're creating win-win scenarios for all of our partnerships. and then let's make sure that we execute fully uh, and report back ef- uh, effectively to all of these partners because that's how we're going to build long-term partnerships where both parties start to, to really benefit. because you know when you do one two year deals, A lot of times you're waiting for results to happen or the results happen and the partnership's over and, you know, the values immediately goes away. So Neil's really done a good job over the last uh, almost two years of bringing new partners in and creating like some anchor opportunities. So we've got some great partners right now.
0: Yeah. What are some of those opportunities?
1: So we've got a we've got a great partnership. Uh, We're in year two with Backcountry, backcountry Backcountry.com. And as they move into kind of the built by backcountry BGNA line, you know, in, in apparel, they not only became our official apparel partner, but Neil brought some of his um, his playbooks uh, from the Cavaliers. And what he did is he also created an opportunity for them to be our official retail. So not only do we are we outfitting the team, but we're also now able to kind of offload our retail responsibilities onto them. And then, and then, you know, in return for, for, for gear and royalties, et cetera. But then we're also able to branch that out and bring other partners, maybe into backcountry or other backcountry partners into our, you know, online store on their website. Um, And they're activating at events. And this is, this is somewhat new territory for them over the last year and a half. Um, And it's been a great opportunity for us to build our footprint in in that retail space and it's something that I think you know is really going to be one of those long-term partnerships where not only is there a great behind the scenes story on this but like you know we're a great test ground because of the professionalism that Neil and now we have a great um, partnership marketing director Casey Mills who's you know really working behind the scenes to help me make sure that we absolutely crushed out of the park with backcountry similar deal that um, actually just kicked off this spring is with NYU Langone. And and that's really a sports medicine deal, but it's really comprehensive of, you know, research and educating our athletes, working with a world-class team of doctors and across a variety of uh, disciplines, but it's also our performance testing outlet on the East coast. And, you know, you might ask well, you're in Park city, why New York? Well, you know we're we're a global sport, but we're also a very strong domestic sport, which is an opportunity that not many winter disciplines can boast. You know, outside of hockey, um, there just isn't a lot of bobsled tracks or speed skating ovals. You know, we have jumps across the United States and a pretty robust events tour. But now Lake Placid, New York, the host of the 1932 and 1980 Olympics, has totally revitalized their venues and has huge plans to return world class events. To their backyard, so this will be a great aspect for us to basically have two home bases here in the United States. Both one in Park City, Utah, that's looking to bid for the twenty thirty Olympics, as well as Lake Placid, New York, which is going to have the World University Games next year, and then start ramping towards potentially an Olympic bid or a, a World uh, Nordic World Championship bid. So having a partner, you know, in in New York has been another really solid deal. Not only for our athletes, but it's a win win for everybody because. Yeah you know, it gives us a footprint in New York city. It gives us, uh, you know, great opportunities to bring on other partners that can benefit from those, those partnerships, you know, like Therabody. We just, uh, we just brought Therabody on board. They've been a tremendous partner, um, you know, outfitting all the athletes with their, uh, their, their amazing recovery, uh, equipment and right out of the gate, you know, we're just, I think we're, we're both, we're all of our partners right now are so engaged and for a smaller organization, because we are, we do have this focus on partnerships and on fulfilling those partnerships effectively to create value for both, both sides. um, You know, I see these as becoming just bigger and stronger as we go down the road. And, you know, honestly too, I think one of the things that Neil's really focused on is creating longer term partnerships so that we have the time to extract the value for for all parties
0: well they make sense going long term because that's where you're like as you said you extract the value you're able to really active, activate the way that you want, that you want to um, because the one and dones they that, that's not that's not an effective way effective way to do it and in fact i i always say you know there needs to be you know media community involvement hospitality you know some sort of a of a brand and the hospitality is there for some business development for these corporations. Right. Yeah. Um, but then branding and some of that actionable marketing and and you've touched on a lot of those. And, and it sounds like, you know, Neil and the team there have, have been able to kind of put together some really effective, um, par- partnerships, partnerships there. Um, but as we kind of wrap up here, I have a couple of, couple more questions that I wanted to, uh, to chat with you here on. So what, what challenges do you face, As an organization, when it comes to sponsorships, and then maybe on the on the reverse side, maybe some successful relationships that you've had there. You touched on already some some successful ones, but maybe what are the challenges? What are what are the challenges of making them successful? I guess right.
1: I think one of the main challenges is that you know in partnerships, you know there's a lot of sophistication and it's and it's constantly increasing and constantly changing. And there's obviously a lot of players, both from the pro sports side to the Olympic space, um, and You know, so you really have to stay really on top of this stuff. And as as the executive director of a of a growing organization with a huge athletic arm, you know, it was really critical for me to bring in the talent from the diff as well as you know in house um, expertise and partnership marketing um, to make sure that you know as our deals continue to become more sophisticated, as our partnerships continue to grow, and the number of those partnerships continue to grow we're able to execute against all the different areas that are important to bring the value for those partnerships, not only to be happy during the contract, but then to be excited to renew and to try something you know, bigger and, and more bold. And I think, I think that's one of the challenges a lot of these sports organizations face. I think on the flip side, you know, from a commercial perspective, it's, there's a lot of Team USA organizations right, across a lot of different sports. Um, and s- s- specifically because we have a very interesting relationship with our national governing body, you know, we are a separate and a commercially independent 501c3 usanordexport.org. Go look it up. Um, you know, we're <laughs> constantly trying to keep those guys in the loop and say, you know, we know we can sell whatever we want, and you can sell whatever you want. But on the flip side, let's just try to make sure that we're not stepping on each other's toes. Um, and, and honestly, I think there's, there's probably more opportunities for even increased synergy, but again, this is an evolving relationship. Um, but those are, those are a lot of our current challenges here.
0: What makes you get up in the morning and do what you do?
1: I mean, I think I'll really bring it back to the the gold medal story. Like it's all about the journey. And when I think about where this organization could be in 10 years, um, I think it could be a model, a new model for, for an Olympic sports organization in in this country. Um, I think there is a huge potential for America to be one of the best teams in the world long-term and to be able to just sit back and, and, and enjoy another journey to another gold medal. Although this one I will admit is a little bit harder.
0: (laughs) Uh, that's good though it's a challenge right keeps you going absolutely that's what gets you up in the morning right that challenge um also if you were listening to this podcast 20 years ago what do you wish you knew then that you know now you know 20
1: years ago i was i was just so focused on hunting fishing and training hard i wish i could have predicted uh how dynamic this environment would become you know, over the over really the last 20 years, the game has changed a lot. And one of the things that I focus on uh, now is trying to be part of a movement for change in the Olympic movement, to make the barriers to youth sport less, to, um, you know, increase the resources for the elite athletes, to increase the resources for, you know, organizations like us uh, to be able to deploy really quality elite programs and also steward amazing development opportunities without losing kids for financial barriers, et cetera. Um, and I think that's something that if I'd been aware of it earlier in my career, I could have been maybe a bit more of a spokesperson for it. Uh, you know, while I was an active athlete,
0: Billy DeMong, Olympic gold medalist, executive director of USA Nordic sport. Thanks Billy for coming on the podcast today. Hey, Jason, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure to follow us at Sponsortalk on Twitter and at the Sponsorship Space on LinkedIn and join our community if you're interested in learning more. Thanks and have a great day.